Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast where each episode offers a deep dive into the wonderful history of Chelsea Football Club. My name's Gary Barone and I'm joined, as usual, by club historian Rick Lanville. Hi, Rick. Hello, mate. Are you well? I'm great. How are you? Not too bad at all. Yeah, I had a great night of entertainment last night. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. So did I. <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 um, we'll compare notes one day to find out what you did and what I did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Today we are unashamedly celebrating Chelsea's first glory nights in Europe. And let's face it, only one English club, Liverpool, has won more continental competitions and beyond than the nine claimed by the Blues. And we're delighted to have a, as a very special guest, Johnny Boyle, who came through the junior ranks as a Scottish teenager. Johnny was actually the club's first official substitute. Mm -hmm. And more importantly for the topic today, he played a big part in our early European campaigns, including our first triumph in 1971. Oh, he did indeed. And uh, in this first part of our European Glory Nights, we're going to hear from John He's a wonderful man, a lovely storyteller, so it's a real treat to have him on the famous CFC pod. Fantastic. But as we like to do, can we set out some historical context, Rick? Like, mm. what were our early aspirations and involvements as far as European football is concerned? Well, let's wind back to the very dawn of European football just after the war, the 1950s, jet age. Brave new era for football as everything else. Um, it, it was the era of the European Broadcast Union. So Eurovision started. Uh, and as champions elect in England in early 1955, the Blues, Ted Drake's team, were invited to participate in the inaugural European Cup for the 1955-56 season. We'll go into much more detail on how Chelsea rather stupidly ended up turning down that opportunity uh, in just a moment. Uh, a remarkable story by itself. What is more important, though, is that Despite standing aside, or stepping aside, the club was hugely enthusiastic about the future opportunities an international club competition offered. It would put its youngsters into uh, international youth tournaments. And basically, Chelsea was looking out to the world. And it's such a shame that we uh, refused that opportunity to take part in that first European Cup. Yeah, as you say, Rick, it's a bit of a shame it took a, another 44 years <laughs> yes. to receive the party invite again. It did. So how did that first European enthusiasm first find an outlet? Well, so after 55, weirdly, our chairman, Joe Mears, who'd made that fateful uh, European Cup withdrawal, was put in charge of a London 11, uh, competing in another new competition that started in 1955 called the Intercities Fairs Cup. Well, what, what a catchy little title that is. So what's the story there, Rick? <laughs> well, it was, most people knew it as the Fairs Cup. Um, and as you may have guessed, it was a competition set up to promote international trade fairs. I mean, what's not to love about trade fairs and football, eh? And not under the auspices of Europe's governing body, UEFA, until 1971, when it became UEFA Cup. It was also Fantastic. weird because um, Joe Mears, London... 11 that competed against other city uh, amalgams mostly featured Chelsea players like Stan Willemsey, Peter Sillett and Jimmy Greaves but players from other clubs in the capital too so Tottenham, Arsenal and the rest. Um, now here it gets even weirder because they started their campaign on the 4th of June 1955 
and played the two-legged final. So yes, they reached the final almost three years later. So the same campaign, three years later in spring 1958. Uh, but unfortunately, Groovesy and Co. lost 8-2 on aggregates to a Barcelona 11. Blast Barcelona! We'll hear more about that later too. Absolutely. But in that same year, 1958, Chelsea qualified for the next instalment of the Fairs Cup competition, again under manager Ted Drake. Yeah, a bit more stripped down this time. And this was our first ever uh, European competition entrance. So three years after we could have been in the European Cup. And our first European match competitive match came on the 30th of September 1958 away to a Copenhagen Select 11 based around the uh, the team from that city called BK Frem uh, Bold Club Frem that stands for or FC basically and we won 3-1 so our first European goal scorer in that game was Mike Harrison and the other two were from fellow homegrowns Jimmy Greaves yes him again and Brian Nicholas but uh, unfortunately we lost to a very strong Belgrade 11 in the next round. So we're out. So it's quite a short campaign, that one. And the continent didn't come calling again until the mid-60s. The same first cup, still not UEFA competition. Yeah. We'll talk more about some of these campaigns with Johnny Bell later. But as an outline, we reached the semi-finals in 65-66 and round two again in 68-69. And then there's the main event, the Cup Winners' Cup in 1970-71. Yeah, the first time we actually won something uh the F, the 1970 FA Cup uh to qualify in Europe rather than being picked to enter because of a merit place in the league so you know you qualified by finishing uh second third or fourth uh, but this time we got in the cup winners cup by winning a cup so at least it did what it said on the tin um now we're not England's first winners of a European competition sadly do you know how many clubs won a continental trophy before us well seven or eight probably <laughs> Good guess. It was it a guess. It is actually seven. And they are Tottenham, <laughs> 63. Um, they've won three trophies in Europe. West Ham, 1965, they've won two. Man United, 1968, they've won eight. Uh, Leeds United, 1968, they've won two. Newcastle United, 1969, they've won two. Arsenal, 1970, they've won two. Two, <laughs> Manchester City, they won the uh, Cup Winners' Cup in 1970. Uh, they've only won one. That's their only trophy in Europe. Chelsea, 1971, nine trophies, thank you. Wow, nine. But basically, the only team with more trophies than us in England, uh, more trophies in Europe, that is, is Liverpool. And we won ours before them because they won their first in 1973. So that's something to tell your scouts mates. Yep. Uh, but they have won 14 overall. Um, so we've claimed nine pieces of UEFA or FIFA silverware. I should FIFA should be involved in that as well. And that's right. We've had more success than Manchester United. So eat that. Yeah, Rick, I need to pick up on one thing there. I don't actually have any scouts mates. <laughs> well, it's worth it's worth making a friend just so you can, a scouse mate, so you can tell them that. That's that's a fair point. I'll send actually. you I'll send you some numbers. <laughs> anyway, after the magnificent defeat of Dortmund recently, we're now ridiculously confident. <laughs> well, I am at least of taking that to ten. <laughs> now we were asked on social media for any questions about Chelsea in Europe, and one that stands out is from Jonathan Kidd of the excellent mm. Chelsea fancast crew, 
please give them a listen. Mm-hmm. Ask him why Chelsea turned down the invitation to enter the inaugural European Cup way back in 1955. Well, we can answer that one. Hello, Johnny. Uh, great question. And uh, partly I can answer this because I was lucky enough to interview our club secretary back in 1955, the late John Battersby. Uh, so I can tell a lot of the tale. And also, I've obviously, I've researched it quite substantially too. So this is the story. So Lekeep set up a new competition and they send out invitations in February 1955 to clubs that they think should be involved. Chelsea were just about to be crowned champions of England for the first time. And uh, and so we received one of the invites. John Battersby picked it up and he spoke to our chairman, uh, Joe Mears. And he's, he said, what do you think about this then, John? Do you think we should enter this competition? And John Battersby said, well, you know, when you think about it, uh, jets are reducing the world, making it smaller, making it quicker to get to these places. There could be some revenue involved. We like uh, travelling abroad. It's something we do very well on our tours. I think we should get involved. So Joe Mears said, I agree with you. Accept the invitation. Incidentally, it was called the European Champions Club's Cup. And uh, we were one of the entrants and we were champions. But purists today who say the Champions League includes non-title winners, i.e. non-champions. Well, so did the very first European Cup. Um, for example, Saarbrücken, they were another entrant. They're from like this post-war state independent of what is now Germany. Uh, they were among three clubs who'd finished third in their country. Hibernian, they were invited. They fifth in Scotland, they'd finished. And Servette were only sixth in Switzerland. So all you people slagging off the Champions League as non-champions, it was exactly the same from the very beginning. So back to the story. So the Kickstarter meeting for this inaugural uh, European Cup uh, was held at the Paris, uh, Paris's Ambassador Hotel on Boulevard Houseman on the 2nd and 3rd of April 1955, and Battersby was re- representing Chelsea. And he was co-opted uh, without really being given much of a choice. Uh, he didn't put himself forward. Everyone was so impressed with him. They put him onto the Executive Organising Committee. And... Um, they agreed the structure, the regulations, and even the fixtures. Uh, Chelsea were set to play Garden of, of Sweden over two legs in the first round in October. Okay, so all of this is all set in place. And the, it was reported by L'Equipe that all the delegates from Milan, Belgrade, London, and Lisbon were deeply aware of the importance of what they were doing. So this is Chelsea recognising how big this competition was going to be um, and being very excited about it. Now. What happened next was, of course, that the the Football League had to agree to these new fixtures, the Garden one initially, being added to the schedule, Chelsea's schedule. And Assistant Secretary of the Football League, Alan Hardacre, is often blamed for what happened next. At uh, a meeting of the Football League Management Committee at the Great Western Hotel Paddington on the 5th of July. So this is like, you know, what's that, April, May, June, July, three months later. But actually, it was Arthur Drury who chaired this meeting. And Hardacre, in his, uh, in his, Hardacre took some notes at the time, uh, obviously to blame everyone else for it <laughs> afterwards. Uh, and his note said, 
that the league secretary, Mr. Fred Howarth, reported that Chelsea had informed him they had accepted an invitation to participate in the competition between clubs from European countries and asked for the approval of the management committee. And uh, Howarth continued, although the opinion that they could not withhold permission, the management committee instructed the secretary, that's Fred Howarth, to ask Chelsea FC to give the matter further consideration. Now I'm doing rabbit ears here for quotation marks because what they meant by further consideration is basically you have to withdraw or we're going to get uppity about it because they thought that their playing in such a competition would not be in the best interests of the league basically their argument was that it would clog up, clog up the fixtures list which was i've looked into this i've looked into the fixtures list these were all midweek games so the idea that there was congestion was total absolute bollocks um and then the management committee, it continued, did not therefore, in so many words, forbid Chelsea to take part for the very good reason that they did not have the power. But the meeting was unanimous that Chelsea should be requested to stand down. Now, this is a really important point because on the one committee member's voice was absent. And that was the voice of the Blues director and chair, Joe Mears, who was ill. He was on his sickbed and wasn't able to attend. So League Secretary Howarth, uh, after this meeting held in his abs- in Mears's absence, telephoned Mears on his sickbed to pass on the bad news. Uh, and Joe Mears, like, kind of pliantly acceded, rang around his fellow Chelsea board members and later informed the committee that the invitation would be turned down. So it's actually Mears who turned it down. But I'm of the belief that had he been fit and well and in attendance at this meeting, I think he would have at least tried to press Chelsea's case. And he may have won over a few of the the members because he was very much an internationalist. He believed in European football and the power, uh, uh, you know, the international power of the game. And I, but I do think he was sort of fatally compromised in this because obviously there's the football politics you know, this is the league telling you that you shouldn't be entering this competition. And then there are his personal ambitions. And I think that's what compromise Joe Mears. He'd recently added Football Association board membership to his CV. So he was climbing up the political pole, the greasy pole of the English game. And he wouldn't have wanted a bust up with the league committee. That would have been the last thing he wanted if he wanted to end up being chair of any of these organisations. So, Rick, why are you so certain, though, that Mears really wanted Chelsea to enter the competition in 55? Well, everything I've read about Joe Mears shows how forward-thinking he was. Uh, he was very much an internationalist. Uh, you know, the fact that he was given that gig to look after the Fairs Cup London eleven for me, is a kind of a sop uh, offered to him because he'd accepted to the climb down about Chelsea, but he wouldn't have accepted that. I mean, who would take on a sprawling, uh, a commitment to a sprawling three-year <laughs> competition unless they loved European football or fancied it or were interested in it? And But also because of his own words, because uh, in 1963, uh, he was elected chair of the Football Association. So, you know, he's the his political machinations did pay off for him. But on accepting that, he made a speech in which he said that the the end is quite poignant, really, in uh, when you think about that. Eight years after 
after saying, stand down, lads, we're not going to enter the European Cup. He puts out a statement saying that, uh, as the chair of the Football Association, the entry of English clubs into English, uh, European soccer is the best thing that has ha happened to football for a long time. The best thing. And he surely held the same view eight years earlier. It was just the situation that he found impossible to extract himself from. Yeah, yeah. So there you have it, everyone. We was robbed by the Football League. But now we turn it to our special guest, Johnny Boyle, to discuss days of wine and trophies as Chelsea chase glory in Europe. Hey guys, producer Jake here. Just want to quickly preface the interview between Rick and John to say that somewhere along the line, the beginnings of the interview was cut off in the recording process. So we are missing out on introductions and Rick's first question to John, which was asking for his thoughts on the massive Dortmund win for Potter and Chelsea this past week. So let's get into his response. Yeah, last night was a bruise night. I, 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 that's the whole thing. I was sitting there and I was imagining from the start to finish, I could feel before I went, I, I had this feeling that it was going to be, the, I could imagine how the players were feeling. You know, they were having a bad time. Now let's go and do it. And when you got there, it was a, sl a different, the crowd had a different feeling. Mm. They, it seemed like they, they all wanted, now here, oh, this is it, we need to give them a lift. And absolutely they did. To me, it was, it was just a, a fantastic night, the way everything went. And it's typical Chelsea, there was this, that, the ups and downs. And, <laughs> but the whole atmosphere was great. And I was, I was absolutely over the moon for, for Graham Potter. I'm just so, so pleased for the man. I've got great faith in him. Um, I've got great faith in the idea that the owners are doing to me. I, yeah. Taking you back, transporting you back through the magic of the internet uh, to 1971, March 1971 and half-time at Bruges. You're talking about a tactician in Graham Potter. What did Dave Sexton say to you when he put you on at half-time in that match? And we needed, we desperately needed to overturn the first leg defeat. Yeah, basically, I don't know that they ever say too much. I mean, mm. I read a great thing about Brian Clough the other day. He said, if you're interested in tactics, you should do dominoes. <laughs> um, basically, all you always doing is getting you on the field for just for whatever the different if you're putting on a, a winger or a centre forward for somebody way at the back. But I think it's just to change things slightly. I don't whatever they say, you probably don't listen to anyway because you're like more interested in what's going to happen in a minute. But of course, you were Chelsea's first ever substitution uh, and a utility player, great in where whatever <laughs> place you played, wing full-back, midfield, and was there something about playing in Europe that someone of your versatility uh, took more of, perhaps, that you learned from playing uh, great opponents from the continent? Yeah, probably some of the very first things uh, I, I learned was was playing, even, even when we played in the youth team, one of the great things was we, we went and played in uh, European youth tournaments in when I was 15, 16 years old. And I remember the first time I ever see, I, we all knew the Italians were a bit suave and sophisticated. And, all that. and the first time they came out, Rome it was as well. And uh, they came out on, in cans and they came out on the, the field and suddenly they started keeping the ball up and doing all the tricks and sort of <laughs> we're looking thinking, have a look at these guys. Um, but then, but we, then we laughed afterwards because we said, "Now they don't like it up them. So uh, 
a few good tackles in that sort of livened them up. <laughs> and then, then after that, when I went to, we played in Milan once. We I don't know if you know, we remember we played a Milan select, and the forward line that day was uh, Jair da Costa, Sandro Mazzola, Angelo Sormani, <laughs> who was the most expensive player in the world at the time, Luis Suarez, and Amarildo. So, so them, and, and one of the things that I think that we learned, or I learned anyway, was that um, you know there's no point in tackling them if you can't get the ball because in those days the used to was the thing the foreigners fall over. Well, well, you learn that there's no point in tackling them and giving away a foul because they would just fall over. So you, you learn to sort of get close to them and mark them and and, and push them back. Mm, interesting. Tommy Docker, they don't even do that that now. They uh, sort of man for man marking. I remember Tommy Doc said to me when we were playing Milan, going onto the pitch. He said, "John, he said, I want you to mark Gianni Rivera." <laughs> I was eighteen at the time. He said, "I just said, okay, okay, boss." And he said, um, "And if he goes to the toilet, he said, make sure you're holding the door." <laughs> Classic Tommy Docherty. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like you made your debut for Chelsea in 1964 and that's like nine years after we turned down the opportunity to enter the first European uh, Cup in 1955 the club that you joined and the club that you played for was it looking into Europe did it want to be in European competitions you know was Europe an aspiration in the club the first thing, the, the first thing I'll, I'll say is that I, that's the one first time I ever heard Chelsea really being mentioned in 1955 when I was uh, nine years old, and I started to get interested in the in my I started interested in the European Cup. It was, it was something that, being a football sort of child, I was interested in, it and um, and that was the first time I had of Chelsea. But when, I, as I say, when I got here, obviously they were because we were already playing in in youth tournaments mm. and um and then and Tommy Doherty and Dave Sexton they were both very interested in, in European football and and how that was doing what we had learned from it. You, they used to fly out to watch games, didn't they, a lot? I know Dave yeah, did. I yeah. think, I think well, Tommy they, they, did as well. Mm. Yeah and one of the first things they did was they took us to training camps there to uh, abroad. I mean after my first season, 64-65, the 65-66 season, it really applies just now, to be honest. We, Tommy Doctor, we, we, we were in a training camp in, West, in Germany mm. for three weeks. The first week of the training camp, we ran around, worked hard, all that there. This, for the next two weeks, we ended up playing seven games. Wow. With a squad about 16, 17. I mean, they're, they're, and they're all good, um, fairly good. They weren't easy. They were Dutch teams and, and, and Danish mm. and sort of jam. But, um, and at the end of that, them two weeks, I mean, we were like superbly fit. <laughs> and when I look at sort of what poor Graham Potter's had, you know, no chance of having something like that. If he had something like that, mate, at the yeah. end of the pre-season. Yeah. Yes, to get that stamina in the legs as well, isn't it? That's the, that's the thing. Um, you actually played in European competitions, not at, at senior level, more than twenty times, didn't you? And um, most of the time, you you started. Um, 
for some of people, young people uh, of your background and the player's background, that offered travel opportunities that you just wouldn't get if you'd stayed at home and uh, got a, a job, you know, like a, a trade or something like that. I mean, it must have been really exciting just to think of all the travel that you were you were going to be embarking on. Oh, absolutely amazing! I mean, and and and, and, and you know, so that's when travel became in the, the sixties when travel became much much easier. I mean, I ended up just <laughs> Tommy Dog said to me I was going to Scotland. He said, "I'll oh, just fly to Scotland, John, and fly back." <laughs> <laughs> so I used to fly up to Scotland when I was eighteen, fly up and down. Really? Um, wow. Yeah, and and our first tour um, in in the, I think it was sixty five. We ended up going. Um, it was a six-week tour of Australia. Oh yes, yeah. That's when Aussie came to the yeah. fore. Aussie, yeah. they, played, they played one game, and when we went to Australia, I mean, can you imagine? So, and and the flight was Rome, Tehran, Bombay, Bangkok, Singapore, and Sydney. <laughs> we'll be back with more from the Chelsea story after this short break. Bet you didn't see this coming. Hope you're ready to hear editor Jake's voice for a while in the ads. <laughs> this time we're coming with Shady Rays. Kick off the new year with new gear built to last. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered from the sun to the slopes with premium polarized shades, customizable snow goggles, and more. Shady Rays is a world-class sunglasses company, independently built, that'll have you thinking you're wearing some of the world's top brands that you already know with durable frames and extremely clear optics. Not only clear optics, but clear ethics as well, having donated over 20 million meals to fight hunger with Feeding America. Something that we have done at London's Blue Podcast. So, and if you're worried you won't like your pair, they will exchange it, they'll give you a new pair, or you can return them for free within 30 days. And if you're worried you might break them, thanks to lost and broken replacements, you can get a replacement pair, no questions asked, anytime. Exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out the best deal of the new year. Go to ShadyRays.com and use code LONDONISBLUE, all one word, all caps, for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. That's right. London is blue, all caps, spelled just like the podcast. You know, the podcast you're listening to right now. You can see it in the title. All caps, one word, 50% off, two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try it out for yourself. The Shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. Are you missing out on your favorite shows because it's not available in your region? Trying to keep your private time private? Well, let me introduce you to NordVPN. If you're bored of the U.S. Netflix, why not just take it for a spin in the U.K.? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you. With 5,000 plus servers, no show is out of your reach. Using my link, nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue. You can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan with one month free. We all love to binge, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there's literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund, and you can pretend the entire situation never happened. Check it out. My link, nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue to get your subscription started today. But 
did you ever go to I know you obviously your purpose is football you're focused on the match and all that sort of stuff or, or training or whatever it is were there any places that you went to that you sort of thought oh I want to come back here I like the look of that or did you get to do any tourism or any anything you know were there any places that you sort of thought oh yeah I'll go back there again um I don't know if it ever well yeah, there's a couple of reasons for going back um <laughs> 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 well, we won't go into those parts. Well, no, no, I, I, well let, me, let me just say I had a few visitors from abroad when I was a young lad. They, they came to me. <laughs> London. Yeah, of course we did. Yeah, we, we were um, free basically to do whatever. There's a great story because um, which I, I, I'll tell you is, and I can't swim and I've never oh. been able to swim. No. Um, I'm not afraid of water, and I've actually gone motor skiing with a with a life jacket on. So right. I, <laughs> I was going under, but I came up again. <laughs> and, uh, we were on a, 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 a we were in Barbados, and uh, oh, a few of the lads we we used to get a a, a boat and hire it and go around the, the island. And we got on this. With, they said, "Oh, here's a boat. Let's go around and have a look at sort of further up a few other places around the other side." So we jumped on this boat. And uh, we drove round, and we got round to the other. Uh, there was a little hotel, our beach, and we said, "Oh, we'll jump up. Let's go here." So, so he pulled up, and he had to, he had to pull up, sort of mooring fifty yards away from the, the oh no the beach. Oh. So I had to, I said, "I'm not going again." So I ended up putting a life jacket on <laughs> into the water, down to the beach. Walk around, you can imagine on this beautiful Barbadian beach, and there's all these beautiful women, and <laughs> we're coming off, and I've got a life jacket around me. Sat down for a glass of wine, and then somebody <laughs> said something. I said, Oh, you looked at me, he said, Boilers, he said, You've still got, got to get back on again. <laughs> so there he is, one hand is swimming, dragging me along. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least you were safe. That's the main thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you're talking about that. There also seems, you know, from everyone I've spoken to who was in those travelling parties in those days, there seemed to be a little bit of a school trip mentality, you know, playing pranks at the airport and, and things like that. Was that part of the kind of excitement, you know, uh, the frivolity that was part of the excitement of going on those trips? Oh, uh, well, well, absolutely. And, and, but Tommy Doc was in charge. <laughs> so Tom seemed to like a bit of excitement, you know, <laughs> at, at times. And uh, it kind of started like that. Uh, and actually, we got a couple of um, fines, Ozzy and I, for um, misbehaving on an airplane. Um, we, um, what happened, we, we uh, pinned a condom to the steward's jacket. Uh. <laughs> tell me, tell me, jacket. <laughs> oh, you, who pulled you up on that, Tommy Doc? Uh, yeah, I think yeah, it was Tommy Doc then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but what happened was, I think we got fined, and and Tom, this is this is yeah, this is true. When we got fined, um, we got you get a registered letter, and we went in and we got fined, and um, but the next trip we were away on, we used to get spending money. Per day, you know, a couple yeah, of DMs, yeah. Um, but but um, and Tommy Doc said to Ozzy and I, he said, "There's an extra envelope, chaps." He said, "That's for your fine." <laughs> well, I mean, I had the pleasure of interviewing Club Secretary John Battersby many years ago, 
and he told me a great story about so it also involves uh, you know you lot uh, on, on a flight to some uh, sunny climb and i think the 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 sort of the board or the you know people like the officials used to travel at the back and i think you the players were normally at the front weren't you and i think well it might have been the other way around i can't remember but john said one of the air stewards came over or the, you know the flight steward came down and said to john look i'm afraid that um some of your people are really playing up they're causing a real disturbance and we're getting dozens of complaints uh, so can you please sort them out really quite angrily? So John's thinking, oh, God, who's this going to be? Oilers, Aussie. He walks down there and the person kicking up rumpus is none other than the manager, Tommy Doherty. And that, he's the one who's causing all the trouble. Um, <laughs> so no wonder he was happy to pay uh, pay your fine and uh, for that your mis- misbehaviour. I'm not. I only get to remind bits of it, but that, that that was probably the time when what happened was that Tommy Doc sat. It may have been the time when he was he was having a bit of trouble with the board and that. Yeah. I think it might have been round about then because we were coming back somewhere, and there was a we were sitting and he started to talk to us and I and sort of winds up late. And we looked round, and there was a Scotsman sitting about three seats behind with a kilt on with his legs wide apart. <laughs> oh no! And we all know that Scotsmen don't wear anything under their kilts. Oh, proper Scotsmen. Imagine Tommy's out with that one. Then the other one was, I think he was, um, he was, he threw a bread roll at Crispy in St Peter. Remember the guy, his singer. They met him in Barcelona, I think it was somewhere, and uh, he had long hair. But I think Tommy's out in trouble for throwing um, the bread bread rolls. <laughs> Bear in mind, this is the manager. <laughs> oh, of course, absolutely. But I'll bet you, John Bassett, if he didn't tell you the story of um of that uh, when we used to go on tours um and wherever it was we went, obviously Mr. Bartleby was responsible for the bills and all that. And, and so I remember one day we were somewhere and, and somebody said about a party or something. So we said, Oh, somebody got some booze, and Tommy says, I'll get you some. So he got the head, the waiter of the, the guy in the in the hotel. And he said, can you put me down a, a chip for 25 beef and chicken sandwiches? <laughs> <laughs> he said, okay. He didn't bring a crate of champagne. <laughs> and the other one was that if he went to the bar, he, we used to say, uh, he used to say to us, find out Mr. John Bartleby's um, room number. Uh-huh. Because when, when sat at the table, yeah. 292, okay, 292, mate. <laughs> Poor old John. <laughs> yeah, lovely man, absolute gentleman. He was a, he was a star. He yeah. held everything, so held everything so together, John Barsby. And so Great. calm, wasn't he? And I, absolutely, an old school gentleman that just, he just, he was, yeah, great. He was, he was a superb yeah, man. Lovely, lovely man, John Battersby. Your European debut for Chelsea was quite an amazing one, wasn't it? It was the second leg of the uh, Roma in the Intercity's first cup. I think that was your European debut, wasn't it? I'm not sure, to be honest. I wouldn't yeah. I've got a photo of you uh, in that match at the San Siro, lying on the ground. I, I, I actually showed it to you a few years ago. I don't know if you remember. Of you lying down on the ground with a missile next to you that uh, I think 
because there was all that crowd trouble, wasn't there? They threw tons yeah, and yeah, tons yeah. of stuff. But I think you said to me at the time that it didn't hit you, but Doherty told you to stay down. Well, no, it, it, it kind of hit me, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It was like kind of either a, a plastic carton full of drink. Well, I hope it was Hopefully drink. drink. Something else. <laughs> And they hit me, and that's what I've, I've, I laid down because of the, the way the game was going. I just thought, oh, hang on, fell down. When Harry came on, and he just said, stay down there for another couple of minutes. Harry Bertrand, yeah. And calm, <laughs> calm things down. Because it was quite a ferocious atmosphere, that game, wasn't it? I mean, it, just to f- fill the listeners in, the first leg at Stamford Bridge was absolute carnage, wasn't it? Sendings off, Eddie McCready, um, I think, punched the bloke's lights out and... We won that game 4-1, but this was the return leg. I think it finished 0-0, didn't it? But then the coach was, the Chelsea coach was attacked afterwards, the team bus. Oh, yeah. Well, well yeah. to be honest, when you, when we arrived and you looked at it, there was, a, they had, there was a moat in front of it as well. And then they had the, the big fences. So so just to see it, first of all, it was really strange. And um, and then, yeah, they were just, uh, just yeah, but they were behind behind the fence so it didn't really matter what what was much much worse was when we came out of the game mm. and got onto the coach suddenly there was bottles and there were, some of the coach windows were smashed in yeah and stuff and people were sort of hiding on the floor but it was really to me as i say i was i was 18 and and i thought this is just amazing crazy exciting in a way but then yeah. daft Sorry, not San Siro. It was Roma, wasn't it? I'll correct myself yeah. there. My mistake. But you did play at the San Siro. You played in all three of the games against uh, Milan in that sequence, didn't you? Including the playoff where we got through on the toss of a coin. I mean, yeah. What memories do you have of those encounters? Um, just in, with, with Milan was probably the, the I've I seen Gianni Rivera for an hour and a half twice. <laughs> and I was, I was like, he's, Booze and buddy for three hours. <laughs> Do you still get a Christmas card from him? <laughs> I think he still shows me the bruises. <laughs> I mean, nowadays, places like the San Siro have a real mystique, you know, the uh, to them in football circles. Was it the case back then? I mean, was it you looking forward to playing at the San Siro? Was it uh, like on your of checklist? Of course, of course, yeah. Well, they they had become the, the San Siro and the New Camp and Bernabeu had become the in the sixties, they had become. I mean, the the, the teams that they had and, and, and the, the, the players and the, and the club, yeah, they were the places. It was. It's a bit like sort of coming. I suppose coming to England and and, and going to sort of Wembley, Stamford Bridge, um, Old Trafford. So it was a definitely one like a, on your bucket list that you wanted to play there. So you tick that off. That's amazing. But that campaign came to a a close in the semi-finals with the uh, but we. Barcelona in the semi-finals and we beat them at home they beat us away and then we had the playoff and then we lost that quite heavily 5-0 how big a blow was that losing that uh, that semi-final to the club and to the players uh, you know not reaching the final I, I, I think it had a big effect and, and I think probably if you go a little bit before that we lost um, 2-0 to Liverpool in the semi-final was it? Ah, yes um, that's when I think that Tommy Doherty started to kind of, he was really affected by that mm. um, and about the team because it was a semi-final and to me semi-finals, I think in Tommy Doherty, semi-finals, you need to have 
gritty players in the semi-finals. I, I love semi-finals because it's all or nothing. And I actually think that at that time then, the Tommy Dockery, because Liverpool beat us in the cup, and then we lost to Barcelona as well. I mean, I mean, the third game against Barcelona was we, we were going to lose it because if you look at the actual fixture list, yeah, it was just it was we were just on our knees by the time we arrived in Barcelona. Mm. Um, I think I don't know if that was the first game or the second game. Was that when Charlie arrived? Yeah, the second it was. Yeah. At least there was something good. Something good came out of the trip. <laughs> Wasn't that where uh, Tommy Dock introduced him by throwing the ball to him, and Charlie sort of did keepy uppy for a, a no, little bit addressing him. No, this, well, all that happened. How he introduced him <laughs> was that. Well, how you introduced him was that he, he, at the airport, and when we got out to, to Barcelona, I think there was a squad of sixteen, so Charlie made it seventeen. So it meant yes, he didn't have a roommate, so he he said. Aussie and Boilers look after Charlie, so we said, "Okay, he'll be in your room." So we went up to the room, Amsterdam. I went into the room, and there was two single beds, and I put you up. <laughs> Luxury. Two, two, two beds, and I put you up. And uh, so Aussie looked and he said, to him, "I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll cut the cards, or Charlie said, we'll cut the cards, pack of cards. Loser gets to put you up." We went okay, so Ozzy said, "Charlie, get them out of the bag over there." And as Charlie turned around to get them out of the bag, Ozzy uh, and I jumped on the beds. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> the words he used? We don't care if he costs seventy-two grand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you also played in the record-breaking thirteen-nil victory over uh, Jeunesse Hocherage, didn't you? And um, what recollections do you have that or the the eight-nil away? I mean. Was it just not real football? You know, what did you, what did you feel about yeah, that? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try and compare the, the two. And when we went to Bruges, the first half out in Bruges, they had a little closed-in ground and it was really tight and they were and they were a good team and they really played well. And I remember saying to somebody, it was like the Alamo for us at the mm. back because we could never get out of our up past our 18-yard line. We couldn't yeah. get out of it. And... Uh, but the other, when we played as you know, it was one of them, Ronnie Harris, Ronnie, I used to say, let's see who, can, who doesn't go past the half line, the fur, halfway line, the furthest. You know? <laughs> Stand back and get it down to them, let them carry on. They're having fun. A bit like that, it was. It's like, yeah. You know, it's disappointing to go out of the competition as holders, as we were in 1971, um, on away goals to Edvederberg in the next round after Jeunesse. Um, so we've gone from like feast to famine in terms of goals. What went wrong in that game? Um, I, again, I, 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 when I, I look back at it, I kind of think it was the, it was the sort of the beginning of the kind of a little ah. bit of a collapse in, in, yeah. in sort of, um, I honestly believe that, that because we were champions of well, champions of Europe, and I think people yeah. believe we were champions of Europe, and that, um, and I think that that some players thought that, and um, yeah, and I think we took our eye off the ball and, and believed that we were all uh, better than than we were. But let's go back to your finest moment, surely, uh, in playing for Chelsea in Europe, because you were involved in both the Cup Winners' Cup final games. 
the final and the replay, two days apart. I mean, how mad is that? Against Real Madrid in 1971. And that was obviously our first ever European trophy. And what's tactical changes in those, you know, two days apart, those two games, what tactical tweaks did Dave Sexton make to overcome such a brilliant opponent in Real Madrid? Again, tactically, I don't remember too much about it. I think somebody was injured and John Hollins came in and and um, I just remember, I think just I was playing right back and I had to mark Gento and that, that's basically... Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. I did not. I had enough, enough on my floor. <laughs> yeah, I didn't play without worrying about anything else. But how how happy did you feel for Demps as well, John Dempsey, for, to get oh, redemption Demp- after Demp- making a mistake, stuck. costly mistake in the first, in the final, and then you know scoring in the replay. Amazing. Oh, he's, such, he's such a wonderful character, and he tells lovely stories about it. And he's such a lovely man. When every time I see him, he brings a big smile to yeah, my face. And uh, for him to score a goal like that is just. It's lovely even now. It's still it's still great to talk to him about it. Well, we must do that at some stage. So what I'm sure all the listeners want to know, though, more importantly, obviously, this is our first ever European trophy. Kings Road Swingers, Kings of Europe. How and where did you go out and celebrate after that win? Um, what? In Athens? Yes. I, I, I don't really remember. I don't think it was anyway. But it was probably a, 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 one of them. Hotel? Um, I think it was a club where they were breaking glasses. I mean, I'm, I'm not right. even really sure, to be honest. Right. Um, it's still, yeah, I know. No, I don't. I'm not sure. I just know that on the plane back the next day, Ozzy and I had a a bottle of champagne. Um, uh, no, I had champagne for breakfast. That's right. That's what it was. Fantastic. Uh, which takes which takes me back to the story we were talking about the fun on the airplane. Well, this 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 one was that um, we were on the airplane uh, once going somewhere, coming back from somewhere, and David already told us that we weren't allowed to drink any alcohol on the plane. That's Dave Sexton, yeah. So Ozzy and I sort of had a chat with the stewardess and said, "Could you put it in a, a in a jug and fill out with orange juice?" That was great. She sort of filled it up and brought it back. Orange juice. We were sitting back there. This is wonderful. This thing. And we said, can you do that again? And I don't know, half an hour later, suddenly, but she was walking back down the aisle with a bottle of champagne and said, is this one okay, lads? (laughs) Rumbled. Oh. oh dear! There is one thing. Were you Sorry. one of the ones that went? Uh, I know I've someone I know has photos of the players at the Parthenon. Um, you know the Acropolis in oh, yeah. Athens. Did you all go up there? Did you all go? No, I don't. I don't no, I didn't. I didn't go up there. Oh. I don't know. The story is that the in the the, uh, the on the Thursday. Mm. Um, Ozzy and Charlie and them and our people, people said they came back and were drunk and everything but I think they went out somewhere met a few supporters had a couple of beers and, and came home but but by the time it sort of got round it was they were um, they were drunk as sacks and sort of the night before the game <laughs> uh, John it's been absolutely wonderful you sharing these memories with us and I think the club are missing out by not getting you as a match day host at Stamford Bridge and I really hope that that happens soon. 
Thank you very much, Rick. Really enjoyed it with you. We'll be back with more from the Chelsea story after this short break. Rick, that was a really good interview. Well done, mate. I pity I missed out on meeting Johnny then. But what I loved most, what stood out for me, was when he talked about comparing the Dortmund match recently with Bruges back in 71. I mm-hmm. loved that. Mm. Well, you know, Bruges is held up by uh, people of a certain vintage who are Chelsea fans as, if you like, the gold standard of atmosphere at Stamford Bridge. And uh, there was a a replica of that, really, against the same team in the mid-90s that we'll touch on in a future episode. But I agree with Johnny Boyle. I do think that there was something magical under the floodlights uh, and that, uh, that Dortmund win. And you could sense almost the electricity in the atmosphere out on the Fulham Road as, as we were approaching and and the noise was consistent throughout and it was a sense of joint purpose. But I also just love John's such a lovely man and a great storyteller and he's so generous with his, uh, about his former teammates. And uh, so it's he tells such great stories and he was there for so much. Yeah, uh, he was. a utility man. I mean, the he club was. should definitely have him somewhere in the ground on a match day as a as a host, so he, supporters can hear more of these brilliant uh, tales from our heritage. Yeah, he was a. I remember seeing Johnny play. He was a very decent player, and he could fit in in any position, Absolutely. in any formation. He could always do a really good job, and he clearly had respect to the players, the big name players he played with. Definitely. They all obviously rated him. He was like a Swiss Army knife player. Yeah. <laughs> he had the tools for every position. A bit like Dave Wave in that respect. And mm-hmm. that's why Dave Sexton loved him so much. I bet. You've been listening to the famous CSC podcast with me, Gary Barone, and him, Rick Glanville, with very special thanks to our excellent guest, John Boyle. If you like the show, please subscribe and spread the word. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, come on, you blues! Please.